Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. And welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. And first thing we've got to say is hello, Finland. Because last Ooh. week we got the charts through and in the sport podcast sports charts in Finland, we were fifth, not sixth, fifth. So hello to all our friends in Finland. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, you wouldn't have thought of Finland as a sort of traditional home of the game. I mean, obviously, Robin Hull represented Finland. Mm. And I think they had a couple of matchroom league fixtures there about 30 years ago. They so, played. A, uh, they played a, 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 a big pram there one year. I remember Mark Williams saying, and this is not the fault of Finland at all, but the flight was the most hazardous he's ever been on. At one point, the plane was basically vertical because uh, wow. because of, of the winds. Anyway, uh, hello to everyone in Finland. Yeah, I, I, I've been aware because obviously Eurosport. Um, there is a lot of interest in that area, and hopefully one day, if we do this live show that you that you mentioned, <laughs> hopefully one day we'll we'll get there. Now, um, the main topic in this podcast will be we're going to be looking at snooker in the media uh through the prism of some of the people we've met in the media and, and that i think will will illustrate the way it's kind of changed in the years that we've been been working in snooker um that's to come later i've also got some feedback about my interview with steve dawson last week and also q school uh by the way some people say there are too many podcasts okay but i don't know whether you're aware of this the bbc they've just launched one about the disappearance of the racehorse sugar which you know oh, is, yes is, is, yeah. a, is a fascinating story who did they choose to present this series mm. did they cornelius lysit mark pugach claire balding maybe no vanilla ice <laughs> yeah yeah vanilla ice an obvious choice obviously because you've got no connection whatsoever in racing and actually i was really intrigued to see what it was like so i listened to, to one of them there's a line in it which is so great i actually wrote it down He's talking about after Shergar's racing days were over, he's put out to stud. And he says, uh, this is Vanilla Ice, he says, uh, the thing is, racehorses have to breed in person. Or should that be in horse? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, uh, the reason they never got Shergar back was because they weren't prepared to pay the price, price baby. Wow. You see, and yeah. that I didn't set you up there. You didn't know I was going to mention that. that that's, all, that's all just natural genius. Well, yeah. Can I just can I just say actually? Do you know what I would be far more interested in hearing would be another podcast about the process and the sequence mm. of events which somehow led to Vanilla Ice doing it. It's a bit like when they have these you know celebrity singing shows on TV and that you know and you and you see the list of ten people on it. You would love to see that the, the list of the ten people they originally targeted well, it, and how it got from one to the other. It sounds like something Alan Partridge would have pitched the meeting with Tony Hayes. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I'm looking anyway. I'm looking forward to Belinda Carlisle on the minor strike. Anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking that idea is the pits. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Very good. Speaking of uh, cult figures, uh, of course we had Dave Tyndall on two weeks ago. That went down well. A lot of good Legends. feedback. A lot yeah, of good feedback, feedback there. We've had an email actually about that, that podcast from Shannon Blewett. So I want to say how enjoyable your latest podcast was with Dave Tyndall. I don't want to take any credit for it, but I will. Some years back, we had a brief discussion on Twitter where I suggested interviewing fans of the game, which you did say you'd consider. 
All jesting aside, it was refreshing to hear a voice of someone I wouldn't have heard of before. And I personally feel in the world of celebrity obsession, there's a gap for these types of conversations. Maybe you could interview other people involved in the game, but behind the scenes, for example, staff of World Snooker, Matchroom, TV production companies, other fans of the game. Just a suggestion. Thanks for the entertainment each week. Notwithstanding what I just said, I could see Dave Tyndall now going on to become a cult figure and have his own successful podcast. I believe well, Dave does have one, actually. He has a golf, he does po- a golf podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, I make a point there. There are people behind the scenes who would be interesting, and certainly the TV side of it. I think it would be good to, to get uh, someone who produces snooker on TV to explain how. So I will I will approach someone at some point, see, see if they're interested. And But the big big thing that came out of it, of course, was the David Taylor fan club. Now, this we were very mm. intrigued by this, and John Hogarth has more information on this. He said... Um, Thanks for the great podcast quiz with Dave. I was disappointed to get two of the questions wrong. He said, I got the month and year right on the diary entries, but failed on the Dennis Taylor and Doug Mountjoy profiles. Sounds like you did better than us, John. Uh, but he said, Not I should. You. But this is, the big, <laughs> this is the big news. He said, I should claim a bonus point for being a member of the Silver Fox fan club and, <laughs> and owning the Silver Fox badge. Now, I'm taking this at face value. John might be joking. I don't know. But that if, if there really was a Silver Fox badge, now we've got to try and find someone. Maybe John's still got his. I'd love to have one of those or just see what the hell it was. It was all badges <laughs> in those days, wasn't it? I mean, I doubt fan clubs even exist now for anyone because no. it's, it's all Twitter these days. But I remember the... the, the uh, the the Beano had the old Dennis the Menace and Nasher fan club, and mm. you got you, you got a badge of each. You got a Dennis the Menace badge and a Nasher badge, which I think had a kind of a sort of a, a bristly rim to it. You know, kind of a, a bit like a sort of a dog's hair. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, what I mean, what else did the? I, I I don't feel we're getting anywhere near the full picture on this. Like, you know, what were the activities? Did they did well, they meet up to go to David Taylor matches? Did they go to someone's house to watch could... play in the Yamaha Trophy? This could be Vanilla Ice's next podcast, looking yeah. into the David Taylor. Anyone, anyone with any more information, maybe we'll get David Taylor on. They can maybe can yeah. explain well, it. We found, yeah. we found out, Dave Tyndall sent us a picture. It was based in, I think, Derby or somewhere. So um, so someone out of, out of Derby was running it. But anyway, let us know if, you've, uh, if you, anyone else uh, was a member. Uh, now, that was Dave Tyndall. Last week, I interviewed Steve Dawson, the new chairman of World Snooker Tour. It was a slightly different tone to that interview. Uh, it's fair to say not everyone uh, not everyone was that impressed. Um, Twitter, of course, is not impressed by much, but we've had a couple of emails. Uh, Martin Eccles from Carlo says, I wanted to let you know I enjoyed the Steve Dawson podcast, but I think he wasn't that forthright in giving answers. Time and time again, he seemed surprised by questions and didn't provide me with confidence. Any thoughts? Well, Martin... You're not alone in saying that. I think it's fair to say, though, he's following Barry Hearn. Now, that's a little bit like, you know, Frank Sinatra finishes his set and you get handed a microphone. I mean, Barry is brilliant in interviews. He's got a very dynamic, garrulous personality. And more importantly, he's been doing them for 40 years. I think that the interview that I did with Steve Dawson was only the second one he's ever done. So he's not that used to it. I think it's true that he didn't give full answers to every question. I could have followed up more, maybe, but we had a finite amount of time and I wanted to cover as many subjects as I could but um, one person who also wrote in is Ian Doyle now Ian he's a legendary figure in the sport he managed Stephen Hendry right from the start of his professional career he built his uh, Q Masters later 110 sport empire out of Sterling and uh, was just a great figure around the sport wasn't he Mm, he was sort of was kind of the Scottish Barry Hearn in many ways and uh, delighted to say Ian has written in. I say that. He has, he has a go at me in the email, but that's fine. I'm, I'm used to that. Uh, so Ian, he starts off in a very uh, upbeat way. He says, current snooker is heading for disaster. <laughs> other, wow. other than Trump, most winners today could well qualify for Dad's Army. Thank God we have them. Qualifying two, that's uh, Q, Q school two, sees an average age of 46, none of whom will win anything. David, I have a great deal of respect for you. You know when someone says that, they're going <laughs> to... Yeah, yeah they go, there's something back yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah. I have a great deal of respect for you, but for you to suggest snooker is now so competitive is rubbish. The World Championship, other than Yan Bingtao, the youngest, was McGill, who's 30 this year. It's not actually true, that, because, uh, for example, Lou Hyshen was younger. But anyway, uh, may I suggest in future we have eight qualifiers and four qualifiers from a group of 16 and under? Uh, remember all those players won ranking events as teenagers plus the UK and the Masters. The average age of winners over the last 30 years has gone up by 16 years. In Scotland, I'm now working with the Amateur Association. From, from September, we're running 18 events minimum, and it looks like we will have a very good entry. 
P.S. We will produce more world champions. That's a promise and teenage winners. So it, the email started on a rather downbeat note, but ended on an upbeat note. Ian, it's great to hear from you. I hope you're keeping well. Mm. Um, I don't remember what I'm accused of here saying snooker's competitive. I, I wasn't talking about young players. In fact, I, I made the point to Steve D- Dawson that there's a dearth of young players and the players that we think of as young are not. They're sort of 29, 30. Um, so, but we'll leave that to one side. Great to hear you're working with the, the Scottish Association. And we'll move on actually because a couple more emails on the same thing about young players. Ray Morgan he says, I listen with interest to, to this Duke Scene podcast with Steve Dawson. He's burying his head in the sand when you asked him about young players coming through. There's no getting away from it. The clubs are closing at a rapid rate and young players are not coming through at grassroots level. You need structures in place, such as there are in China. As you know, the average age of players at the Crucible this year is 37 plus. And a lot of players that have qualified from Q school are well into their senior playing years. I realise it's in their blood to want to play, but their ship sailed a long time ago. It amazes me how they managed to live and play. Jimmy said a while ago it was 25 grand just to play on the tour and then you still have to live. I can see it with young players being subsidised by their parents, some even remortgaging their homes multiple times, but it's beyond me how the older players manage it. We're also reminded the standard's higher than it's ever been, but can you tell me what measure is being used for that? Because apart from Yambing Tao, no youngster is winning. But that's kind of the, I'll just break in there, that's kind of the point Ian was making. I, I, I think the point is the standard is high in the older players. This is the thing. Mm, the older yeah. players are really good, and I don't really get this. I think we may be, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, I think we may be talking about age too much, because... Does anyone really, if say you see, go, you go and watch Snooky, you see Ronnie O'Sullivan make a maximum, are you really going to come out and say, oh, well, you know, it would have been better had he been 27? Why? <laughs> Why can't you just appreciate these players? But I agree, we certainly need new players. Um, I'll just finish Ray's email. He says, Steve contradicted himself when asked about the disparity in prize money in tournaments. As he gave us the same answer Barry Hearn does, they reward excellence, and yet they're also giving out these wild cards. And then finally he says, he says he listens to the players, but comes across... A bit like the late, great Brian Clough used to say. A player comes to me with a suggestion. We're going to my office, have a brief conversation. Yeah. We agree I'm right and move on. One more point on this before I ask you what you think. Ma- Malcolm Johnston is the English Pool Association under-23 team manager. He makes an interesting point here, I think. He says it's not PlayStations or lack of young players, but the sheer cost of business rates on buildings big enough to host snooker tables, nine-ball pool tables and eight-ball pool tables. This isn't everywhere in the UK, but in a large number of towns and cities, no club could look to make a sensible profit with the crippling yoke of blind councils treating all businesses the same. Big clubs like Riley's have come and gone largely due to pricing themselves out of business to cover these costs, but it never gets spoken about. As a club owner, I know I thank God for the job Barry Hearn did bringing snooker back to life. But with more and more clubs closing, where will the players come from? The fact is the players on the circuit today came from mainly a time or an area of low rates, keeping clubs, giving clubs a chance to stay open. Keeping a club in good order isn't easy, but the few in my region that have several pros like Barry Hawkins and Gerald Green have to invest hard-earned money just to cope with the new sprays and disinfectant to keep them open, let alone everything else. Well, I think that's a, a good point, and it all kind of goes into one, doesn't it? It's a pretty, I suppose it's an obvious thing in a way, if there aren't places to play, People aren't going to play. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just the rates. I mean, it's the cost of even renting a building. Uh, if, if you're in a big city now, to rent a building big enough to have a snooker club, even with a modest number of tables, it's astronomical and it doesn't make sense really financially. And I mean, I, I know what the situation was like, certainly in Dublin, which is what I would know most about because that's, you know, the city I was living in when I was playing a lot. Put it this way, a lot of the clubs have closed there. Now, one very well-known club in Dublin closed down a few years ago because the owners of it realised that they could sell the building for seven million quid. Now, I mean, imagine how many hours of table time you would have to uh, have people playing to get that much money. And, of course, you'd have to pay your staff and the upkeep and all the rest of it. So it just doesn't make financial sense, really, to run a snooker club. Again, in Dublin, one of the few that's still there is Finbar Ruan, who we've mentioned a number of times, who we both know quite well. He runs a club, but it's as much a labour of love as anything else. And the thing is, where his club is, there's a load of traffic goes by. So he just has loads of advertising on the wall outside the club. And I think he makes as much out of that as he does out of anything else. But all these things we're talking about quite clearly are all related to each other. Fewer places to play means a lot fewer people playing. That's why we don't have as many young players coming through. And that's why the old guys are still at the top, because there's there's nobody coming through to challenge them. It's it's pretty straightforward. And yes, I agree, you know, you need structures like you have in China, but 
China is all about structures. And I mean, you know, the young people are basically used to being corralled into things and organized into things. It's a very different culture over here. And it struck me, actually, when I was listening to the Steve Dawson interview, that most of snooker's problems now, unlike 20 years ago, come from outside factors. I mean, a lot of our problems 20 years ago were basically self-inflicted from within the game. But well, really, that, that, yeah. this is the big problem now. And, you know, it, it isn't actually really the fault of snooker that people aren't playing the game in the same numbers anymore. And, and therefore, it's very difficult for people within the game to come up with the solutions. It's funny, actually, that uh, the first email you read there was uh, from Carlo, because, of course, Carlo was where the ivy rooms were. And Carlo's only a tiny little town, really, in Ireland. And yet, because Jim Lacey was such an enthusiast, he ran the ivy rooms for years. They staged the World Under-21 Championship, uh, I think, a couple of times. It was a wonderful place for the game, but eventually it got to a point where it just wasn't sustainable anymore. So, you know, in his hometown, in Carlo, uh, the, our, our correspondent there, there's a classic example of why we have these problems now. Yeah, I mean, I think you could definitely make an argument that the professional game is better run now than it's ever been. Sure. But the grassroots is probably in the worst position it's been in since before the boom. We're going back 40-odd 40 40 odd years, and it's it's a strange paradox, really, and how you marry the two up, I don't know. But it's worth saying as well, and maybe people in Finland uh, who, as we know, listen en masse, will, will, will say this. We're talking about the UK and Ireland. We are still we are still ahead of a lot of other countries. We heard we had an email last year from someone in Italy who had to travel hundreds of miles mm. to find the, the nearest table. So you know, there, it, by comparison, at least we have the amateur structures. The WPBC are, are doing their best as well. We have the governing bodies within the UK and Ireland that, well, you know, when COVID hopefully has gone away, can can put on their events again. There are structures. It's just getting the numbers because you need numbers to drive up the competitiveness. You know, you know, you go back to Willie Thorns in Leicester in the sort of mid-90s, all the junior events there, every Sunday you'd have Sean Murphy, Mark Selby, Judd Trump, even Neil Robertson when he came over first time, you know, players that went on to become stars. Um, and they all brought each other on. It's no good being the best player in your own club. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be uh, learning your way through losing and, and learning that competition. It's difficult. And, uh, you know, Steve Dawson suggested that numbers were, were going up. I'm not sure what the evidence for that is. Um, we'll see, won't we? We'll see whether they come through. But that takes us nicely on to Q School, yes. um, which is which is just finished. Because I said a few weeks ago before it started that I thought at least seventy five percent of the qualifiers will be players who'd already been on the tour. In fact, yeah. all but all but one was. We must congratulate Dean Young, nineteen from Edinburgh. He's going to be a professional for the first time. He's the only one who qualified who's not been on the tour before. In some ways, I, I suppose it's not a surprise, though, is it? Because the amateurs haven't played uh, exactly for, like, for last year. They've had no tournaments. They can't practice. So it's not that surprising. And, and a lot of these guys, you know, the player I was not surprised about getting through was Peter Lyons. I think he's absolutely made for something like that. He's a very clever snooker player, knows how to win matches, knows how to keep people out, you know, got all that experience. Barry Pinchers as well. Um, you know, OK, they're in their 50s, but, you know, they, 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 they've got snooker running through their veins. Alfie Burden got back on. Craig Stedman. These are all good salt-of-the-earth snooker players. And there were young players who qualified, you know, not only Dean Young, but uh, Jackson Page got back on. Wansi Which Jun, brilliant. Yeah. Jun, Lepe Fan, they're all in the 18 to 21 bracket. It wasn't all all old stages, but certainly I think what, what, what it proves is that a Q school experience does help you a lot. And being 65 years of age, you're going to have <laughs> gathered a lot of experience. And that yeah. why, that's why, for me, you know, I know he didn't really... Well, he actually got close enough in one sense to, to get in his card, but I don't think it was ever really likely he'd see it through. But for me, Tony Knowles was the story of Q School. The number of matches he won, 65. That's retirement age, you know, for people with real jobs. So, you know, to, to, to come along and do that. I think if we're all being honest, when we saw he was playing, we all probably had a bit of a chuckle and a sneer. You know, let, let's be fair about it. We probably did. But he proved us wrong because he won a lot of matches and some of them against decent players. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, they're not harming anyone. You know, and also maybe this been a bit of sneering about some of the old guys getting on. But maybe this is a sort of a representation of how we view people who get older in life. We sort of write them off. Why shouldn't they play? And mm. they've come, come through honestly. You know, they've won matches. It's up to the younger players to challenge them. One player I wanted to mention was Dwayne Jones. There's an extraordinary story there. Mm. Um, basically, on the, in the last event, so it was his last chance, he went down to breakfast. I think he was playing sort of in the morning. Went back up to his room to get changed and get his cue to go to the venue. Couldn't get in the room. We've all been there with the key card. 
go back down, they give you another one. That didn't work. So the hotel came up with their MasterCard to get in. That didn't work. Now, if he's got to play in like an hour's time, rang Martin Clark to him and said, look, we've got a problem here. And Martin, quite rightly, couldn't do anything about it himself. In the end, the hotel, good on them, basically gave him a hammer <laughs> and let him smash, <laughs> smash the door in. And he smashed the door in, got his stuff, and, of course, qualified. So well, it, incredible, really. It's funny. Uh, when we were talking, the one we did with Phil in Milton Keynes a couple of months ago, and I, I was saying how one of the most oft-quoted wrong statements uh, in, in sport and in life generally is, if you keep knocking on the door, it's bound to open eventually. <laughs> and, and you said sometimes you've got to kick it in. Little did we know how apt that would prove to be uh, just a little while later. But, I mean, Jackson Page qualifying, that's really important, isn't it? Because... You know, you want players coming through from all of the UK. And as we said, so few of them have been coming through in recent years. Jackson Page does look like a real prospect. Now, it's really, really hard to keep your card at such a young age. And he's someone who you could see actually having a real impact and being the standard bearer for Wales. I know Mark Williams has been great for him, has been uh, giving him a lot of guidance. So it's great to see him back on. And just because you've been relegated off the tour... And got back on. That doesn't mean you're not good enough. I mean, Neil Robertson was relegated off the tour. Kyron Wilson was relegated off the tour. And they both got back on. Sean Murphy. Sean Murphy, absolutely. Yeah, a long time ago. And again, also Dean Young as well. Great to see him getting through because, I mean, for so long, we had an amazing stream of talent coming through from Scotland. Several world champions. And that's even before you get to the likes of Alan McManus and a few other guys as well. Um, but that it has really dried up in recent times. Dean Young, though, very young player, and uh, I know you were saying I think he's been coached by Chris Small, who's, who's building yeah. a bit of a reputation, uh, the former LG Cup winner. Uh, well, so yeah, good, great, great to see a Scott getting through as well. Well, that's a good sign because Chris Small, John Parrott famously labelled him the human limpet. He said he yeah. grabs all the and it doesn't let go. So if he's got any of that attitude, that's good. And also, if Ian Doyle is getting involved in, in, in the Scottish scene, you know, one thing we know about Ian is, you know, he doesn't do things by half. He will he will have them working properly and, and doing it properly. And let's hope for what you say is true, Ian, and, yeah. and we can produce more players in the future. The best compliment I can pay to Ian Doyle, and he's one of the few people who would regard this as a compliment. He's one of the most annoying people you'll ever meet. And it's because, <laughs> but, 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 but he wants to be. That's the thing. And Ken Doherty will tell you that was one of the main reasons he won the World Championship was because Ian Doyle was in his ear. He was on his back telling him about his attitude. And Ken basically started getting out of bed in the morning, going to practice just to shut Ian up. Now, yeah. you know, it's effective. And I've never met anyone who loves talking as much as Ian. I can never remember being in his company that he was silent for even a moment. Um, <laughs> but he's just, that, that just sums him up. He's got so much enthusiasm for everything. He just wants everything to be done well. And, you know, some people might disagree with some of the things he did over the years and might have had their, you know, their confrontations with him. But nobody can deny his sincerity and, you know, wanting to achieve things and wanting other people to achieve things and, and wanting to help them along the way. So it, it was great to hear from Ian. He must be some age now, but I'm delighted to hear that he's still taking uh, a bit of an interest. And uh, wouldn't it be great to see him back at a tournament with some young Scottish uh, prodigy in, in time to come? And, um, you know, that would really be like turning back the clock. Well, this is the other thing. We'll wrap up this discussion now. But in terms of young players, what you need is people coming forward, giving their own time. I mean, you look at yeah. look at Malcolm Thorne. Um, well, Snooker did a video this week at Mark Selby's house. Now, Mark Selby grew up in quite a poor area in a council house. And you look at his house now, you see how well he's done for himself. And that all started, of course, with Malcolm giving him free practice because his family couldn't afford to, you know, to, to, to pay to let him play. And, and that's where it started. And of course, you need the player to also be committed. It's not just the, the enthusiast. But when that works, and it worked with certainly Ian and Stephen Hendry, well, anything's possible. Anyway, we'll move on to our main part of the discussion. Before we do... I had an email from Sam Kelly asking if I got his email. I did, Sam. So feel free to contribute whatever thoughts you have in the future. That email address works. By the way, the email address is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com if you want to get in touch with us. Now, I thought we'd talk about snook in the media and how it's changed and some of the people who've been involved over the years and just some of the kind of stories. You know, it's the summer. Well, why shouldn't we? Mm. Um, we can only talk about our time, which is basically the same period of time. Mm, yeah. um, I started working for the WPBSA as junior press officer at the end of 1997. But the first tournament I really worked at, because I'm mainly in the office in Bristol, the first tournament I worked at was the World Championship 98, a few months later at the Crucible in Sheffield, of course, which was also where I met you for the first time. 
Yeah, um, it was the first year I went to the World Championship. I'd done the Irish Masters. Well, here's my question. Prior to that, yeah. Here's my, here's my question then. Well, a question and, a, and an explanation. Tell, tell people, A, what, what the press room was like, and B, what, what, did you, what had you expected it to be like before you went there? Well, what it was like was smoky. <laughs> um, that's the first thing. I mean, my word, it was sponsored by Embassy, and it was a room full of you know, people who, well, uh, half the room were chain smokers. The other half were uh, heavy drinkers. I'll stop short of calling them alcoholics. So what an environment for the two of us to be going into at the age of 21. Uh, but we loved it, didn't we? I mean, it was oh. just I, I thought the press room might be a bit bigger. Uh, that was the one thing. It's like everything about the Crucible. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not as big as you expect it to be. Um, I, I mean, how, how do you begin to sum it up? I remember Phil being on that program, Steve Davis and Friends, where he was asked, well, what's the press room like? It was around that era. And he said, it's basically like being in school, but as an adult. And, <laughs> you know, th there's a lot of truth to that as well, actually, because, you know, the uh, the banter is completely merciless. And by the way, it was proper banter, you know, not not what people pass off as banter now. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, well, no, we, hash, well, no, it wasn't hashtag banter, it was just banter. No, it was, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the one big difference was every major British newspaper had someone there. That was the thing. And, and they all had little signs above their, their booths, which we used to have in those days, saying what newspaper they were from. And, you know, a lot of them were people who had been around the game a long time. You had the likes of Clive, Phil, uh, people like that, John D, who all knew a lot about the game. And then you had other people who perhaps didn't know so much about it and were sort of all-round sports journalists and got sent to tournaments. Now, one or two of them used to annoy us because they acted like they knew all about the game. And it'd be a bit annoying when you actually did know a lot about it. But then there were one or two who quite openly acknowledged, look, I've been sent to cover snooker by my employer. So obviously I was going to do it. I'm not an expert in the game. And they actually hold their hands up and say that. Tony Stenson from The Mirror was a classic example of that. And Tony could be great fun and great company to be around. And he told the story, of course, about how when he was asked to do the um, snooker for the first time and he was traveling up to Sheffield and there were all these adverts on the telegraph poles all the way up there saying, read the Daily Mirror for Tony Stenson's great insight into snooker. And he was just laughing at it. because Well, he knew... it, was, it, said, it said the man who knows the players. He'd never met that any of them. That was it. That was it, yeah. <laughs> Famously, <laughs> somewhere along the way, I don't know whether it was when he was still in the office or whether it was uh, when he got there, he asked someone what the yellow ball was worth. That's right, yeah. And, no, and when they, they went to play a frame, in the, in the, this was sort of his, was first, his first week there, and, and he, he didn't know what the yellow was like. But it's interesting you mentioned him, because before I went up to, and it was a big deal for me, obviously, to be going to work at the World Championship, that, that sort of the back, at, back at base, WP would say, they were all kind of all watch out. They called them the Beastie Boys, the tabloid mm. guys. So it was mm. Tony Stenson, Tex Hennessy from The Express, John Doherty, from the Daily Record in Scotland, uh, and so on. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, they'll eat you alive, those guys. And th the opposite was true. They couldn't have been nicer. They treated, yeah. me, far, they treated me far better than the people I worked for. They, were, they, couldn't yeah. have been, they could not have been nicer. They were big characters. They knew it. They, let's be honest, they enjoyed a drink. There was a free bar in, in, the, in the press room, very prominent in the press room, right at the front by the TVs. You could basically drink all day if you wanted to. It's fair to say they helped themselves now and again to the odd beverage. Um, but they were big hitters because, as you say, they were working for big tabloid newspapers. And in those days, they had big circulations and, you know, they were expected to get stories and they got stories. Not, 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 not always sort of, um, I don't know, the, 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 maybe some of the quotes weren't always absolutely well, uh, what was said. But, but they, 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 I, what I would say about those guys is they did their best for snooker. They weren't anti-snooker. They went up there to try and cover that tournament properly. And they did do. Yeah. And, and just uh, what you were saying there actually reminds me of when we had a little presentation to Tony when he retired and we got a mounted yellow ball. And I think we actually had on the plaque underneath how much is the yellow ball worth or something like that. But Steve Davis, who was president of the snooker writers at the time, he came in and made a little speech and he said, Tony's got some great quotes out of us over the years, some of which we actually said. And I think that kind of summed a lot of it up. But it was an extraordinary environment for us to be going into. But you're absolutely right. I, I didn't get any sense from anyone that... They were being anything less than welcoming to us. And they were very down to earth. And th th these were people who, you know, we would have looked up to because they've been involved in the game for a really long time. We'd grown up reading their copy and listening to them in a lot of cases. But they were just, you know, very welcoming of us. I think the likes of us turning up 
you know, we were probably 10 or 20 years younger than anyone else there. We were new faces, whereas they were used to seeing the same guys tournament after tournament, year after year, just to have some new young people in the press room who also happened to know a bit about the game. I think it was probably uh, quite quite welcome for some of the old stagers. Tex Hennessy was an absolute legend. He'd been in the game a long, long time, um, knew everybody, very cheerful sort. Legend had it, and a lot of these stories, you know, you wonder if they were true, but legend had, has it that he would actually stop drinking at the Masters to give himself a couple of months to prepare mm. for the onslaught of the cruise because you've got to remember, the key thing here it was a free bar okay and also there was a slight sense a lot of these guys Tex for example was a sub back at the Express so we sort of changed the office desk there was a lot of there was a bit of a sense with some of these guys they were let loose they were let out of the office mm. for a couple of couple of weeks to cover a big sporting event and they enjoyed themselves John Doherty lovely guy from the Daily Record very much so yeah um, I think he he wrote Henry's first book didn't he I think he did oh. yeah way way back I think that was when Henry had only won one world title uh, yeah he wrote a book so yeah yeah he definitely did that but on the other side of the fence so they're the kind of beastie boys but then you've got the real sort of snooker reporters and that tournament was the first time I had a proper conversation with Clive Everton I'd sort of I hadn't really seen him on the circuit because I hadn't been on the circuit I'd been to the odd day of an event here and there but he didn't go to every tournament and he he, he did what he does to everyone at the Crucible used to he, he said he said, oh, yes, he said, come and have a chat in Intellectuals Corner, which is yeah. what he used to call, that's what he used to call his little, his little part, his little booth, his little part of it. And, and that actually, um, that, that comment was the first indicator of something that I, it hadn't occurred to me, which is that Clive is much funnier than you would expect. You know, mm. you, you listen, because you just grow up listening to him on the BBC, reading his stuff. It's all quite serious. But what I realised was how funny he was and, you know, genuinely engaging, was interested in me. You know, he wasn't, I mean, he was a legend to me, but he didn't talk about himself at all. He was asking me, you know, my background and so on and so on. Um, and in a way, I think I, that was, because that's quite early on in the tournament, that kind of put my mind at rest. I thought, OK, I am going to be accepted into this sport. If Clive Everton will spend half an hour talking to me, things are going to be okay sort of thing. And the, the sort of stories I'd heard back at base about, you know, what would happen, they're not going to happen. And, and they didn't. Yeah. And, and Phil as well was very similar with me because he'd been to the Irish Masters, which was, you know, the, the tournament I'd covered. The first couple of events I'd gone to were both there. So it was great to turn up at the World Championship for the first time. And basically the man who was kind of number one around there at that stage, because, you know, Phil, you know, again, another person who just never stopped talking. So, you know, he knows everyone and, you know, again, you're walking in there, 21 years of age, first time you've ever been at anything on this scale. And, you know, one of the biggest names, you know, in snooker media comes over to you, says, oh, great to see you. And I'll introduce you to Clive and other people later on. Just fantastic. You don't get that in, in any other sport at all. Yeah. But, you know, that, that the, uh, the the doyens of it will, will be as welcoming to you as that. I mean, I remember one of the first away uh, football matches I went to with the Ireland team in Estonia about 20 years ago, being in a taxi with one very well-known journalist who was sitting in the back seat. And I reached in, introduced myself, stretched out my hand. And I can't remember whether he even shook it, but he certainly left me hanging for an unacceptably <laughs> long period of time. And I know why he did it. He was just trying to be the big I am, which is just, yeah. and you know, I never forgot that. As you know, I don't forget these things. So, uh, but equally so, you know, I never forgot Phil kind of welcoming me into the fold in that way. You obviously with Clive, and I'm sure with Phil as well, of course, who I think you had met at the Blackpool qualifiers. But Well, that's it, yeah. Yeah, an incredible thing to be going into. And I just remember the last night sitting there, such a buzz, John Higgins, new world champion, which was a rare thing in those days to have a new champion. He's there with his family. He's willingly giving interviews to absolutely everybody. And I just remember thinking, this is fantastic. This is a wonderful scene to be part of. And it's actually exceeded my expectations. And that's a great thing to come away with uh, from something that you've you're built up to for years and years. And then you experience it. And it turns out to be even better than you hoped it would be. Yeah, you come, you come away fully satisfied, but also stinking of smoke. Um, yes. No, I mean, Phil, I mean, any other sport by now, Phil would have had like a services to, you know, his sport award. Mm, I mean, yeah. because what a lot of people don't know is the extent to which, particularly in the sort of pre-internet, pre-Q-tracker, snooker.org days, the way that Phil would be depended on to help people out with information. They weren't all snooker experts by any means. And he would be the person they would go to. Where you know Stuff as simple as where so-and-so ranked or what's he done this season or whatever. He was kind of the go-to guy. Um, 
the sort of person who you've definitely missed if he wasn't there. Um, and he was incredibly busy as well. He wrote for the Times. He did Radio Five. He did all sorts of other freelance gigs, RTE in Ireland, local radio for the BBC. Um, quite incredible actually to to see him working. Um, but also, like you say, making time for everybody else. And you know, he's one of my best friends to this day. Um, absolutely. Mm. Um, let's talk about some of the other characters. I mean, if you watch Gods of Snooky, you would have seen Pete Ferguson appear on that. Um, he was a daily, the Daily Mail snooker correspondent. He'd actually been at the first Crucible because he worked for the Sheffield Star in his younger days. Um, he sort of straddled both sides of it, didn't he? Because he was a tabloid journalist, but he didn't sort of get too mixed up in too much of the hoopla. He was a very professional person, still is a very professional person, um, and of course had a big gig. Daily Mail is a, is a big newspaper, but uh, another just very friendly guy. You know, you think, I don't know... The, in those days who the Daily Mail tennis or cricket correspondents were, I'm not sure they would have been quite as friendly to the likes of us. No, absolutely not. And yeah, very good memories of Pete. And he would help you out with all sorts of things, even things outside of, of snooker, actually. I remember one or two things uh, he was he was helping me out with. So yeah, I would just echo that again. And he actually was only there, I think, really the first few years that, that we were involved. And then he was replaced by other people. And then the Mail stopped sending someone altogether because that was a big thing that changed, wasn't it? It went from every big national newspaper sending someone there for the two weeks to some of them maybe only coming then for the second week or maybe even just for the final. And then some of them just not sending anyone at all. And then it would pass over maybe to some of the freelancers. I mean, you look at Hector now, Hector Nunns, you know, again, it's someone who does know a lot about the game and really, you know, is, is, is a you know big follower of it and has been all his life. You know, he now does most of those tabloid papers. So it was it, it was gradually reduced. And I mean, you go now, there are very few newspaper people there. You just saw it over time that the sort of people from traditional media and the print side of things gradually went down and more and more people there from websites and all this, you know, new media, as it used to be called mm. uh, when it actually was new. Um, but it's funny, it, it, that in itself changed because most of those people ended up only coming for maybe a year or two. Uh, and it changed from that culture of it being the same faces every year to uh, people just coming and going, uh, and you know, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I kind of had a slightly distorted, I had a distorted view that first year of how it all worked because you mentioned that John D, Trevor Baxter as well, and Phil, they were all freelance, so they would work for for, for anybody. Um, and I remember where, at the end of the, the final that year, I kind of was leaving the press room. I said to them, oh, I'll see you at the reception. And they, they all said, oh, we're not going to that. And I said, mm. I said, well, why not? And they said, well, because we've gone there before. And what happens is when the sponsors stand up and make the speeches, the only journalists they thank are from like the tabloids who've been, you know, the staff people who've been sent. And at the time, I thought, sort of get over yourself. But then, of course, the next season, I arrived at the first event. It may even have been qualifying. And who was there? Phil, John, and Trevor. The the no one else was there. The the sort of the big the big beasts weren't there. And all season they were at every tournament. And in a way, I mean, they did every sort of publication you can imagine. All the all the freelance gigs. They kept snooker bubbling up in the so-called lesser events. Still gave it publicity at a time where the Times and the Telegraph, in particular, would take a lot of copy. You know, they take every day of a tournament. They would take a, a report. Um, and of course, what happened was they just got taken for granted. That's what completely, happened. Completely, yeah. That's yeah. what happens if you turn up. And I, to be honest, I've experienced this as well. When you just keep turning up all the time, people just expect you to be there. Um, so what you find is some feature writer turns up from a from a broadsheet or a tabloid, and they get treated like royalty. Whereas the the people who've actually been there day after day, because they've been there day after day, they're just expected to turn up. They just get they're just part of the furniture sort of thing. And those guys and John passed away a couple of years ago. Um, those guys did a hell of a lot for snooker. They just kept it in when newspapers were more of a thing than they are now. They kept it in the headlines. Well, there was one guy I remember who turned up, and this wasn't that long ago. This was only about 10 years or so. Very well-known, I'm not going to name him, obviously, but very well-known national newspaper journalist from a very high-profile newspaper, which didn't send a regular person anymore, and basically came and wrote a piece saying the whole final had been rigged. Yeah, I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was absolutely incredible stuff. And and it got a lot of copy as well. I mean, it's maybe about 800 words in a prominent national newspaper the next day saying that one of the players had been told to ease off because they didn't want it finishing the session early. And that then when the other player had won a few frames back, that the player who was ahead was told, right, now you can go ahead and finish it off. I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. 
that yeah, that was the, allowed to happen. And then the same guy then gets welcomed back. Exactly. And that's given, what I don't given like. Given priority the following year. I found that absolutely incredible. That's what I don't like. And look, again, people will say, get over yourselves. But I, I, I really think, you know, you've got to you got to kind of, um, you know, realise what you had. And I don't think they did in those days. Like I say, we're talking 20 years ago now, but those guys, and I became one of them actually <laughs> as well, which is probably why I'm so forthright about it. But, you know, they were very important. But another person who was important in those days was Eric Whitehead, the photographer, mm. long-time photographer, great character, Eric. Um, he had a reputation for missing 147s. If, if, if Eric ever said, I'm popping out to the shop, you knew there'd be a maximum. Um, but he was part of that little nexus as well. Um and took a good picture. There was one one time where everyone was very nervous when um, Alex Higgins was playing. And I think Alex had sort of got the photographers basically thrown out. But Eric wrapped himself in a carpet, a bit like Cleopatra. He wrapped himself in a carpet in a sort of in a, in a sort of far off uh, with, a, with a sort of long lens and managed to get pictures. Extraordinary, really. Yeah. He missed more 147s than Tep Trial knew. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, Eric, uh, for some reason, he was known as Sticky Bun. I, yes. I never, I have no idea why that was, but yeah, again, just someone who, you know, was a real snooker enthusiast. I don't know if he necessarily was when he started doing it, but uh, he, he certainly became so. And he was, for most tournaments, he was the only photographer uh, that was, uh, that's been around the game. I remember going into the toilets in Bournemouth during the UK championship and Eric was there with, I don't know oh, what yeah, it was, yeah. this yeah. big long stream of plastic and he was drying it with a hairdryer. I mean, that was how they did it. In those well, with the negative, I guess. With the negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, well, c- certainly, you know, the journalists were always good at finding the negatives at any <laughs> tournament at that time. Well, but I was... then I, I always wonder, how did he send it? I mean, nowadays you'd email your pictures. How on earth did he send those pictures that they ended up in, in newspapers the next day? It was a different age. But I was in, this is a true story. Mark Williams was there, so he can he can verify this. We were in Malta. And we were, oh, staying, yeah. we were staying in a very nice hotel. I mean, they were always treated fantastically in Malta. So in a very nice hotel, and they didn't start particularly early. They didn't start till like four in the afternoon. Quite rightly, he gave us a chance to sit by the pool uh, at lunchtime. And uh, but it was such a sort of plush hotel. There was actually a, an international bridge tournament on at the same time. And you know, it's fair to say they were they were a bit posher than some of the snooker lot. And this woman came over. We were so I was sat with Eric. This woman came over, and the Russian team had gone missing, or members of the Russian team had gone missing, so they couldn't start the match with with Great Britain. She's come over to Eric. She said, uh, "She said you look. She, she said you look Russian. She said you look like a co- you look like a Cossack." She said, "Are you are you one of the bridge players? Are you Russian?" And he's looked at her. He said, "No, I'm from Berry," <laughs> which was the and, end of that. I t- and of, of course, yeah. Well, you, I'm probably what I'm going to say is probably what you were going to say. He was then known as Cossack for the rest yeah. of his time on the circuit. Uh, that's what Mark Williams calls him to this day. Interestingly, um, she something about posh people. They're, they're very indiscreet. She told us a very indiscreet story about Jeffrey Archer, which I won't repeat. But anyway, um, but that was Eric. <laughs> well, you just got to mention actually, yeah. just to pick up on something there. You mentioned uh, Malta there, and we were both there in 2006 when Ken Doherty won the title, beat John Higgins in the final. And uh, then, of course, we know what happened the next day. They got thrown off the plane. John had maybe had too much to drink. In I was on the plane. Opinion. I was on yeah, the of plane. course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I do remember um, we were all there. Tony Knowles, actually, who we were talking about earlier, he was in, the, in the, the Sunshine Bar, which is where we all were. That was where it all started that night. And funnily enough, I mean, it was a late finish to the final. So you and I, I think, were among the first two to leave because, you know, we were where we actually had a flight to get the next morning. And I remember one of Ken's mates, wanting us to stay and getting really angry when we left. And he literally followed us out of the pub and as we were walking down the road, shouted, typical press. Now, if there's one thing the press <laughs> are not known for, it's being first to leave the bar. The other thing, actually, just about Eric, am I right in thinking he was the first photographer on the scene of the Lockerbie air crash? Um, I believe, well, I know he was there. Whether he was the first photographer on the scene, mm. I couldn't tell you. I'll tell you, tell you who else was there. And this is really going off at a tangent. Uh, referee Bruce Duncan. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Who was in the police at the time. Anyway, that's uh, yeah. again, Vanilla Ice will be all over that one. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um But you're quite right. As as the sort of years passed, um, things started to change. And the sort of internet started to, this sort of wild thing we've heard of called the internet started to come to the fore. And of course, people forget now. We talk about Ian Doyle, but... Q-Masters were at the forefront of, of that because these are the days World Snooker didn't have a website, WPBC, whatever they were then. But uh, the, they, what became 110 Sport was set up. T- TSN it was for a while. And, of course, Stuart Weir was, was in charge of that. And 
an ideal choice to run any operation, really, because one thing Stuart, and to this day he's very heavily involved in, in the media in Scotland, one thing he doesn't lack is energy. I think it's mm-hmm. fair to say. Mm-hmm. And it, being at the dawn of something new, I think, appealed to him as well. And I work for them, so I'm biased. But that website was really good. because in the end, they tried to launch a rival tour and it all kind of went wrong. But the actual idea of it at the time was a really good one. Yeah, I think you're doing uh, World Snooker Association, as they were called at the time, ah, the disservice. Yeah, they did. They, they they did have a website. It was fantastic. You went onto it, and there was a a blue snooker ball with WSA written on it. And <laughs> but it, no, hang on now, hang on. Let's be fair. It's it it would spin around while you were looking at it, and that was literally it. That was literally <laughs> all they had at the time. Now, obviously, you know, they picked it up a bit after that. But I mean, there was huge money put into that that website, and I think you know. Not everybody, in fact, recognised straight away potential uh, for things like that. But, I mean, a lot of money was put in and unfortunately the operation didn't work out. I think a lot, a lot of it was, you know, to do with that, that, that they wanted to become a much bigger thing. They wanted to sponsor tournaments. Then they wanted to run their own tournaments. And when it didn't all work out, I think perhaps they became a bit disillusioned. And I think they did have a bigger sort of business plan as to how they were going to make money out of this. And when things like that didn't come to pass, well, then the whole business plan sort of collapsed, and that, and that was the end of that. But well, the, the, uh, one of the so pro- much one of, content. Well, one of the problems was they they had rights to the Scottish Masters, which they shared with BBC Scotland. But this was in the pre-broadband days, so it was still dial-up. So although they could show the matches, it was you know if you didn't have a really good connection, which in those days people basically didn't. It was it was it was tough. But I remember we had a little studio. I mean, it was a proper operation, and. Uh, Phil came in one one night to sort of you know sort of at the interval they were going to ask him some questions, but it was run by students this this thing, um, and one of them just pressed the wrong button. So ro- rather than watching, say I don't know Stephen Hendry against John Higgins for about ten seconds, you saw Phil Yates eating a chicken biryani. Now, <laughs> well, I, I know when you paid your, when, when you paid your money, you know, yeah, um, he was trying to curry favour as usual, but um, <laughs> but twice, um, twice, baby, if you yeah if you. <laughs> If you want to know, uh, it was a rather amateur setup. If you if you want to be reminded of it, you, you can watch the new Andrew Neil channel at the moment. But yeah, anyway, yeah. my word, it was there's there's your chance of getting a commentary gig on there when they, when yeah. they buy the rice gone. Yeah. It was uh, it was a bit like Wayne's World. You know, there's another contemporary yeah. reference for Judd. I think think pe- pe- people made that, uh, but it was also unfortunately like another movie of that era, Brewster's Millions, because there seemed to be this desire to just spend yeah. this all these millions and pounds, but uh, some people had a great time. And in fact, we all did because they seemed to have endless bar tabs. So even if you weren't working for TSN, you could certainly have a hell of a good week on them if you were, were at a tournament where they were running one of these studios. There's no doubt, though, that the internet did did catch on, that people probably would have noticed. And it will I, eventually, yeah. And newspapers, I suppose, didn't know what to do. A lot of them got caught in that thing of, do we just give it all away for free? In that case, who's, who's going to buy a newspaper? And I think in, in the written press, more and more, we became uh, dependent on actual enthusiasts. A bit like we were saying earlier on with sort of Malcolm Thorne helping young players. Someone like Hector, for example, who was a snooker fan, came into the game and, you know, managed to sort of build a little freelance empire for his own. More latterly, of course, you know, Phil Haig, uh, who's writing sort of fantastic stuff on the, on the Metro website. Um, Nick Metcalf. I'm not, they're not freelance. They work for the Metro, but... Um, they're enthusiasts. The point is, you know, if, if they didn't like snooker, they probably wouldn't be obviously be writing such good stuff. Um, so we've become dependent on them and newspapers. It's interesting. I don't know how people, where people feel newspapers stand. To me, they're still important because flicking through a newspaper or or a website, you know, you you can. It's like flicking the TV channels. You can happen upon things. So, for example, if you get the Sunday Times to read their golf report. Well, okay, you've read it, but underneath there might be something on snooker that you find really interesting. It might mean you'll tune in that afternoon. You know, so obviously specialist websites are all very well, but there is something that's still to be said, I think, for you know having a sports section, you know, and and mm. and and having this having this coverage. There was a perfect storm, I think, around about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, because up until then, actually, the amount of snooker and newspapers was still holding up well-ish, shall we say. But then two things happened at almost exactly the same time. Uh, Online, the Internet became suddenly much, much more mainstream. It went from being something that was on the rise to something that had risen and had become huge. And that obviously affected newspapers really badly. That happened at the same time as the huge economic crisis that we had uh, around that time as well. The global financial crash, as it's often described. And that obviously put more of a squeeze on resources. And snooker was one of the things that got cut 
Uh, in a lot of cases, they started relying more on just churning out copy in their own office, maybe cutting back on it as well. And I think that was around that time, really, that things really started to dip. And, and also, it became much more practical for people who were still covering tournaments for newspapers to maybe do it from home, to do it remotely and maybe not even necessarily be at uh, tournaments. And, and that really, I think, was when that whole scene uh, really started to change quite significantly. And I mean, you see it now. There are hardly any newspaper journalists at tournaments. You go to a press room at any tournament. Most of the people there are you know, working for World Snooker or they're working for, say, you have the people who do the um, the service, the, the, the local newspaper service that I think Eurosport pay for. It's, it's things like that uh, rather than people who are there being sent by newspapers. And of course, you'll see Hector in a lot of tournaments. But as you say, I think Hector would be the first to acknowledge if he wasn't such an enthusiast for it, he probably wouldn't be doing it because it's, it's always been, I think, a very difficult thing to do and a very difficult thing to make a viable living out of, uh, but perhaps even more so now that, than it ever was before. No, that's definitely true. And you, you touched on something there, of course, local papers. You know, you, mm. I think traditionally, if you, I don't know, end up in a tournament in Wales, you'd have someone from the local paper there and and so on and so on but the, the, you know the first thing to be cut at local newspapers is journalism that's the they're the first yeah. people journalists are the first people to go it's harder than ever york always used to be great hugh mcdougall great character there steve carroll took over from him they love snooker but also they saw the fact that there was a major international sporting event in york as a very important thing and they made sure they came every day they gave it acres of space but it's hard to do that when there aren't the journalists to cover it and like you say they're not even allowed out of the office to report. You know, it's mm. harder. You know, local newspapers definitely sort of gone into decline, sadly, over the years as the internet has taken over. Um, and there's no, I don't think there's any way of turning that around. It's just how it is. So we are where we are. Um, I suppose where are we is the question now in terms of snooker in the media. Obviously, you know, social media now points people to a lot of stuff. And it's, there's no doubt, I think, there's a generation, if you said to them, you've got a choice, you can either watch this five minute video or read this 800 word article, they're going to watch the five minute video. Of course they are. Mm. Um, I suppose it's how do the two coexist? And I, I, they're sort of difficult bedfellows. I mean, there used to be a sort of code at the press conference. You know, you go to the press conference, you get the quotes and it would be agreed sort of what what would be used the next day. Maybe something would be held over for a sort of follow up. But now it's pretty much just goes out on Twitter straight away. So it's harder for those guys to keep stories back and have any sort of exclusives unless they obviously do their own interviews. I think as uh, Neil Harmon is, is the or certainly was the tennis correspondent mm. of The Times. And he wrote a book about you know his experiences. And uh, it was built around a particular season. I think it was the 2012 season on the tennis circuit. And he was saying he got to a point where he didn't even really bother with the press conference anymore. He'd been around the game so long that he knew uh, most of the top players personally to the extent that he could just collar them for a word for two minutes as they walked out of the room after the press conference because he was saying there was no point in anything else because for a newspaper the next day, everyone's already read the quotes because, as you say, yeah. they, they just appear. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it, you're just fight, fighting a losing battle, basically. It's, but by the next day, other matches have been played. That's always been one of Snooker's problems, of course, that really a, a lot of the time it's only afternoon sessions that make it into papers, certainly into early editions. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of evolved further now that everything is there. I mean, not only can you read the quotes, you can probably listen to or watch the player giving them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on, on a video somewhere. And that's why that whole scene that, you know, that we were part of. I mean, I always said I was very, very fortunate that I came into it at a time I was primarily servicing the Irish media, well, we had the world champion, you know, only a few weeks after I did yeah. my first tournament. And that created obviously interest in him. And then we had other players like Fergal O'Brien, there's his weekly mention. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Joe Swale, Patrick Wallace, people like that. So there was, you know, a great opportunity to cover snooker uh, within Ireland, covering those guys, but also the fact that they were doing well created more interest in the tournaments generally. So the newspapers and radio stations, and that would take a, a lot of copy off you at that time. But when those players went into decline, again, it was probably all around the time of that perfect storm I mentioned in the late 2000s, that uh, the whole nature of it changed. And, you know, you had to do other things to, to stay involved in snooker. But also, even if even if players do do a press conference, they can also then go and do their own Instagram live or they can they can mm. speak directly to to unfiltered by sort of, you know, awkward questions or anything. So that's a, that's a whole thing people are, are grappling with. My feeling is from Will Snooker's Will Snooker Tours point of view is that I think they should be a little bit more open to 
a little bit more of the media. They, they're a little bit elitist, I think, in, in terms of who they consider to be the media and who they don't. And indeed, people within the media, they seem to sort of have, I think, their favourites and, and maybe their less favourites. What I'm saying is, OK, last, this week, Snooker.org um, announced their figures for the last season, which were fantastic. That website's been going since 1994. Mm. Q-Track has been going over 10 years. And I know for Fat World Snooker use those a lot for information that they themselves, for whatever reason, as a governing body, don't have. It'd be nice if they were given some recognition, either through even some funding to help with operating costs or just a shout out now and again, just to acknowledge their contribution, which I think every snooker fan, even the contrary ones would agree is huge. You've got someone like David Colfield who writes his site every day, you know, providing snooker fans with, with his own insight and information of what's happening. There are lots of enthusiasts, not maybe not necessarily professional journalists, but that, you know, their hearts in the right place, definitely. And they're doing a lot of the legwork and, we are a huge television sport, but in the rest of the media, we are still fighting for the scraps. Make no mistake, snooker is low down the pecking order for a lot of media organisations. And I think there should be more of a sort of acknowledgement of the fact that we've moved on. OK, it's not all now, you know, snooker correspondents from national newspapers, but there are still a lot of people who are trying to promote the sport. And I think they should be encouraged because we need them, don't we? Yeah, and it's funny just listening to you talking about all these websites that have been around such a long time. You know, that was all just getting started at a time when we were first becoming involved in the game. So we've seen the growth of that really from day one and how the Internet has changed the world of, of media. And, you know, that's been true of snooker as much as anything else. I mean, we were around at the World Championship when I can't remember the name. Well, maybe maybe it was TSN, actually, or maybe one of its forerunners. But they literally had they had live scoring. They had two people people yeah. at the back of the room who were literally updating it manually ball by ball so you know we've been around since that time and we've seen how it's changed i think inevitably and i don't think you know i'm not saying this is something that i personally will, will welcome I, I do think when people talk about the ultimate demise of newspapers i think it is going to happen i, I mean i do think it's not happening anytime soon but i do think in another 15 to 20 years newspapers could be more or less defunct or kind of a curiosity, like sort of vinyl records, maybe in a way, because there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, when I talk to young people and everyone seems young to us now, mm -hmm. you know, they, they talk in a completely different way about media. I mean, I've, you know, I know I was talking when I was at the, the pool in Milton Keynes, I was talking to uh, Christina to who I think is about 21 years of age. She's uh, from Moscow and she was playing in the tournament and she was saying she literally does not watch television. I mean, she watches screens, mm. yeah. but she doesn't watch an actual television. She wouldn't even know what a television channel was. Funnily enough, she told me that uh, she's learned a lot of her English from watching Peaky Blinders. And when I told her that, <laughs> when, when, when I told her that, which of course is around your way, yeah. and when I said, oh, one of the lads from Matchroom is from Birmingham, she said, it's a real place. Which was, uh, <laughs> I then went on to tell her, of course, that the star of the series uh, is from the village where I live. But I think at that stage, she thought it was just some... Some crazy Lunatic. old man, yeah, but it was all true. Well, to just to wrap up, then I think that the challenge then is to embrace new technology, and I think Will Snooker do that really well. Um, but not maybe not give up on the old stuff absolutely. And as I say, sort of maybe make more of an effort to acknowledge that there's a lot of people who are trying to, to do their best to promote snooker. Um, it, it's changed definitely. If you go to a tournament now, the press rooms are like you say, it's basically sort of staff from the governing body and maybe the odd journalist if they can get the you know the time to go to go and cover the event um it doesn't mean the events aren't being covered they're just being covered in a, diff in a different way but we definitely you know it's, it's great the snooker is still big on tv of course it is but we definitely need that ancillary coverage around it um sure. as well as well and it and it's kind of yeah it, it's and also there are different audiences you know uh, yeah young people maybe you know consume a lot of sort of digital information but not everyone does there's still you know, there's no, a, lot, a lot of readers of Snooker scene who just like getting them, their magazine every month. Yeah, but I mean, the reality is, unfortunately, Dave, we're going to get old and, you know, people are going to move on and, you know, there's going to be a younger age group coming through. And, you know, it's, it's not a myth. I used to think for some time, you know, I'm such a traditionalist about so many things. And when people used to say, oh, young people aren't watching television and they don't read newspapers, I was very skeptical about it. But, you know, now I see like my nieces and nephews and most of them are in their teens and they're very much part of that. I mean, they spend all their time looking at YouTube rather than watching TV and they would barely know what a newspaper was. So it is true that that's happening and it's just an inevitability. There'll be more and more of that. Can I interject actually at this stage? Because mm. it's kind of related. I just mentioned YouTube there. If I said to you, Kirk Stevens 
versus Mike Watterson, what would you say? <laughs> I'd say uh, I'd say pump it into my veins. Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't ring any particular bells. It... Uh, not really. Okay, well, it might want to tell you about this. The, I, I had heard, because I think we were talking the other week, weren't we, about 16 red clearances and oh, maybe yeah. making a break. Yeah. yeah, more than 147. So I remember this, there had been this thing I'd heard about that Kirk, when he played Mike Walterson in the Yamaha tournaments that I think we also mentioned the other week, that he was on for a break of 150, but didn't actually make it. Mm. Now, now, I have to say, I don't know if you've been looking recently, but maybe it's because the season's over. There's some fantastic stuff finding its way onto YouTube at the moment. And one of the things I came across the other day is this frame. And, you know, it wasn't some vague outside chance that he might have made a 150 he actually got as far as 107 and there were two reds left and all the balls were out in the open and he missed yeah not an unmissable red but one you would have expected him to pot so he could very well have made the break of 150 anyway it's all there to watch now and if anyone hasn't been looking at youtube recently go online because the last uh, month or two there's been a, a huge amount of new stuff coming on there and uh Again, it's wonderful to look at that and just to see how differently the game was covered in those days and how differently it was all talked about and how different it all looked. And that was certainly one of the best things I've found recently. Well, imagine if someone did make 150. I mean, you talk about going viral. Mm -hmm. That that would be a, a story. And actually, that would and this may, may be a good way to conclude. That would marry the two ends of it. It would be a good story for newspapers, but it would also be a great sort of clip to watch uh, to watch online so yeah no pressure lads just someone make a 150 and everything is mm. uh, everything is solved um i think that's that that'll do for now we've been well we've been yeah I, I was thinking though i mean you really could talk for about three or four hours about all the people who have been through yeah. the press oh we've left a lot of people out i know I yeah know. I, I, and all the various stories uh that we've had and you know some incredible laughs along the way and uh and also some of the people who turned up for one tournament you know, caused a scene and were never spotted again you know, at another event. There have been plenty of those over the years. I don't know how interesting that is to the wider public. Hopefully they've, they've got something out of it. But, you know, one thing I would definitely say, and I did touch on this in, in another podcast that we did before, what you, what you experience when you are behind the scenes at a snooker tournament for the first time, it's not what you expect at all. I mean, I expected everyone to be there hanging on every ball and, you know, the press room to be almost silent, you know, as everyone's just watching and taking note of every single shot. It's so relaxed and so different to that. It maybe gets a bit like that when you get down to the, you know, a final frame or the end of a big final or whatever. But it's such a relaxed environment. And it's actually, you know, if, if you like just sitting, chatting socially with people who are also, you know, snooker enthusiasts and Q sports enthusiasts and are of a similar mind and have the same sense of humour. You know, it's actually, you know, a really, really enjoyable experience. It's changed a lot over the years, but, you know, those of us who've spent a lot of time in that snooker media environment over the years, it's just been a great privilege because, you know, most of the people who get to experience that have, you know, become, you know, re really good players and, you know, have had, you know, an enormous amount of ability that they've uh, applied themselves to, uh, to utilising well. So, you know, I think when we look back and, you know, inevitably the day will come when we're not involved in snooker anymore in any way, we'll look back and think uh, what an incredible experience it actually was. And as we alluded to earlier, the fact that we were there on the scene at, at such a big, you know, so much at the heart of it all, at the biggest events at such an early age, we took it for granted at the time. But you look back now, it was an incredible thing to experience. Very much so. And I guess we're now veterans. <laughs> mm -hmm. in, fact, I, in fact, I'm now the age where I remember asking much to his chagrin, Steve Davis, if he was going to retire. Well, he put it this. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, and he and he was very polite about it, but he said, "What? Basically, why should I?" And then I described him in the in the story as evergreen Steve <laughs> Davis, and he said, "He said, why don't you just put him old? Because <laughs> that's yeah. what you mean, anyway." I, I honestly think I asked Stephen Hendry that when he was thirty-one. You know, <laughs> but he seemed ancient at the time. Yeah. What I was going to what I was going to say there was, you and I next year will be the same age that Doug Mountjoy was. When he won the UK Championship in 1988 in the brown suit, so well. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> on that on that bombshell, um, we're very proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out the other podcasts. Not any money from them yet, but anyway, that's a, that's maybe a conversation <laughs> that we, we should, won't now that you've uh, said that that we shouldn't have on the podcast. You can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Uh, there'll be plenty more. I don't know what yet, but there'll be plenty more. Next week, uh, who's your tip for the Euros? There's no Irish interest, of course. Yeah, God, I mean, we're losing 
to Luxembourg now. Um, yeah, I, I fancy Italy. And I, yeah. I know it's easy to say that because they played so well against Turkey. But even before it started, I mean, most of the big countries are kind of rebuilding at the moment. Germany, I'm not sure they're doing it so well. Spain, I think it's a work in progress. Italy look more like the finished article. And they've obviously got a very good, very experienced manager. But I think you guys, come on, when are you going to win one of these tournaments? Well, yeah. I, can, I, can do my, I can do the joke I did on Twitter, OK, which is football's coming home. But when it gets here, it'll have to quarantine for 10 days. Thank you very much. What, 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 what a fantastic. What, what a story it would be. I mean, obviously, the fact it was postponed by a year means that it's literally 25 years now since that summer of 96. And imagine if England were there back at Wembley in the final. Gareth Southgate as manager, Alan Shearer, probably yeah. presumably sitting there working for the BBC as Britain, you know, emerges from the, the COVID crisis. What an incredible story it would be. And. Come on, you got to win a tournament eventually. I'd, I'd love to see. Most Irish people hate to see England doing well. I'd love to see it happen. I'd love. I'd love to see you win a tournament. But I think I'm just going to fa- favor favor Italy. There, we're not a football podcast. What I would say is, it's a very likable England team. They're likable. Yeah, people. yeah. They're, li- they're yeah. likable people. They, they yeah. seem to have yeah. a, a certain humility, and uh, that certainly applies to the manager as well. Anyway, we will see. Because uh, England Scotland coming up this week. Uh, but that's it for now. So thanks for. Thanks for listening. And Phil Yates, who we met all those years ago, has, of course, given us our final word, indeed, if it is a word, which is goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.